0: This is In The Moment. I am your host, Mohammed Ramadan, owner and founder of Ramadan & Associates, a Chicago-based law firm focusing on business and personal injury law. Listen in as we discuss everyday legal topics, a legal podcast made for everyday people, not just lawyers. What's up, everybody? This is In The Moment. I am your host, Mo Ramadan, and today we have a wonderful, amazing guest, someone I've been really, really anxious to get onto the show, Uh, Today we have Christina Abraham, a lawyer, producer, scholar. Uh, Welcome to the show, Christina. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, the reason I'm excited to have Christina is her legal background is, um, bar none, one of the best I've seen. Uh, She's done all types of work. She's worked in Italy, Bahrain, which we (coughs) will talk about today. Um, She's worked in many other countries. She's uh, focused in Chicago. Um, So we're going to Get right into it. Um, The one thing I do want to start talking about. um, So, I've been following Asya Bundawi's documentary, Uh, Feeling of Being Watched. So, you know, I grew up in the South Side. I grew up in Bridgeview, uh, well, around Bridgeview area, but I'm very familiar with Bridgeview. And, you know, the documentary really hit home with me. And I actually know Asya's brother. Um, I found out later that is her brother. So, I did grow up with him. So, very familiar with this. So, I was following it and you know, one day I was uh, reading a Tribune article and it was discussing the case that we're going to discuss right now. And it said that she was represented by Christina Abraham. And I'm like, oh, Christina's on this case. And the reason I was really excited is because I think you're a hardcore fighter. You're not scared. You're the type that will take the fight to whoever it is. And a case like that needs someone like that. So I was really excited to see that you were on the case so let's get into that because you are basically fighting the feds right now. Is that correct? You have a lawsuit against the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is the FBI, which we call in the streets the feds. Tell us a little bit about that um, and just kind of briefly about the case and, and what brought it about and, and what you guys are trying to accomplish with that.
1: Uh, so that that lawsuit is trying to get the government or, or started out seeking to get the government to respond to a Freedom of Information Act request that ASIA had filed back in 2016.
0: Okay.
1: So um, she filed her Freedom of Information Act request and she asked for documents that uh, pertain to an, an investigation, a massive, a wide-scale FBI investigation that occurred in the 90s in the mm-hmm. Bridgeview area called uh, Operation Vulgar Betrayal. And she also asked for any Uh, investigations, any files that continued the work of Operation Vulgar Betrayal, because what her initial investigation uncovered was that there was a a wide-scale FBI investigation that targeted the Bridgeview community back in the 90s, and there were some hints that she uncovered during her investigation that post-9-11, that investigation was reopened under a different name or, or several Different names. Um,
0: just to be clear, Bridgeview, for those that don't know, is a highly uh, Muslim populated area. It's got one of the biggest mosques in Chicago. So when we mention Bridgeview, um, it is an area that's heavily populated uh, with Muslims there and, and one of the biggest mosques. So that's why this is prevalent. So I just kind of want to clear that. Yeah.
1: Up. So she filed this lawsuit. Uh, I'm sorry. She filed the Freedom of Information Act request under a law that allows citizens, uh, people in this country, to request information from the government. Um, it's a it's, uh, law that's supposed to promote transparency and government accountability. And so when they did not respond to her FOIA request, we had to file a lawsuit. Uh, that's what the law allows us to do. So we filed a lawsuit in federal court. And thankfully, we had a really great judge who was able to see what, uh, why the request was so essential. One of the things that the government was trying to argue Uh, in order to say we don't have to produce these documents uh, anytime soon, is that this is not an important issue. This is not an issue uh, of public interest today, Mm -hmm. that you're talking about an investigation that occurred in the 90s. And what we argued, and and thankfully that the court saw, was that, no, in fact, that investigation that started in the 90s actually set the stage for the way that the Muslim community was going to be encountered by the FBI post 9-11 and so it is relevant it's still relevant today um, and we still see the effects of those investigation methods right. today
0: so I basically set the standard how the FBI uh, sp- basically spies on the Muslim community yeah correct? absolutely okay now you are also co-executive producer of the documentary is yeah. that correct yes awesome so you're the co-executive producer and the attorney right
1: Right. I, I'm one of, the, of of a few attorneys on the FOIA litigation. I'm the attorney that helped her go through the documents as well. So okay. we had to go to court, and the purpose of us going to court was to get a court order that said, government, you have to give her uh, these documents that she's asking for. And so we were able to get that from the court. Um, and then the second part was going through, because the initial... Uh, FOIA response was that the government had found 33,000 documents related to her wow. request. They just didn't want to have to turn them over anytime soon. So they acknowledged that there were tens of thousands of pages responsive to her request. Um, so, um, so, she, So they had identified these pages. They didn't want to produce them, and we got them to produce them. Then the second part of it was actually going through all of these documents to find out what was in them, and what we were able to find was actually pretty. Uh, it affirmed a lot of what the community was saying for years and years about what the FBI was doing in the
0: neighborhood. Now are these heavily redacted documents, I think I saw that was an issue where they're like, okay, here you guys go, and then you guys get them, and it's just like most of it's redacted. Mm-hmm. So, um, is that an issue that you guys are also fighting as well, getting? non-redacted, I don't know if that's a real word, but non-redacted documents?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the things that's still going on in court today is It's about 60 to 70% of the pages were withheld altogether, so we didn't even see it. And then of the pages we did get of those documents, on those pages you would see like 60% of the page, if not more, redacted. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, issues we have with that. So for example, so under the FOIA Act, The government can redact certain things, and what a redaction means is it blocks out certain information that not everybody has access to, and there are reasons that they can withhold that information. So, for example, if I'm asking for documents, and some of those documents have your social security number, I have no right to have access to your private information, so they'll redact that. And they're going to give a code that says, this is the reason for the redaction. So I'll look at the code and I'll say, oh, okay, this was private information that belonged to somebody I'm not entitled to. Or it could be pursuant to an ongoing law enforcement investigation that gives another code. And so by the code, we're able to tell what the reason is for them covering up that information. But we know that not all those redactions were justified. I'll give you an example um, you know that as a lawyer, you know that anything that's out there in the public isn't privileged, right? Correct. right? You can't pretend that something is private if it's already been made public. Correct. So some of these documents we saw in, in more than one place, uh, it would say something like, the following was found from a newspaper article, and then they would redact it. Uh-huh. Like, why would you need to redact something that was public information? These types of things, and more, I mean, there was a lot of things, like there, like I said, most of the pages were redacted altogether. Um, these are the things that are going to be the next phase of the challenge. So we're not even there yet. We're still trying to fight the government on producing full documentation. Um, there were, so one of the other issues that came up in court was the government only wanted to produce documents regarding the Operation Vulgar Betrayal nothing else and she her FOIA request specifically asked for any uh, investigation that continued the work of operation vulgar betrayal
0: so subsequent cases and investigations
1: exactly because we know that operation vulgar betrayal was closed in 2000 just before 9/11 and then after 9/11 we know it got picked up again but not under the same uh, name and uh, you know pro- perhaps even broken apart into several different investigations.
0: So you got to create that link uh, to show the judge that even though it's a different name or a different operation, inherently it it was based off of that. Is that the link that you kind of have to make or what is your argument going to be to get the subsequent cases, um, getting files for that?
1: Um, So this is what we, we have been going to court over. And so far it's been, It's been pretty good. I mean, the judge has seen that if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So if you have an investigation that started in, say, 96 and ended in 2000, and it was a wide-scale, like the OVB was, it was a wide-scale, massive investigation of surveillance into the Muslim community, not just in Bridgeview. It also expanded nationwide. Uh, And then it shuts down. And it shut down, by the way, because there were allegations that the special agent in charge was engaged in misconduct and discriminatory behavior. He was accused also of sexual harassment. There were all sorts of reasons. And it was also there were other agents, other FBI offices that were calling into question all of these uh, broad scoped requests they were receiving from the Chicago office. So we have a memo from Springfield where the FBI in Chicago asked for information on private individuals, and the FBI in Springfield responded and said, um, "In you know, in the future, you you know, you should provide us with a reasonable basis for your for your uh, suspicion, such that we can." look into these files for you otherwise. I mean, there was like warning signals. Mm. I mean, agents, one office is not going to tell another office is unconstitutional, but that's about as far as you're going to go. It's like, what's the basis of this investigation? Isn't this a bit too broad? Mm. Even other offices were calling attention to that. Other agents were calling attention to that uh, at the time. So, um, But what we do know is that this was a massive wide-scale investigation that involved hundreds of Muslim organizations. Um, we have records, for example, that tell us that at some point, uh, it, the it, it, I think it's the Islamic Shura Council of North America was formed, and they, they were put together, I guess, by a bunch of uh, other Muslim organizations that wanted to create a, a directory that provided contact information for every Muslim organization and school and social service uh, provider, these types of things, uh, so that people could, you know, call them up and and find places, Muslim organizations, you know, people in the community. And we have records that show the FBI investigated, created sub-files on each and every one of these organizations. They wanted to look into them. This is over 400 schools and civil society, civic organizations, um, charitable organizations that they opened sub-files into under Operation Vulgar Betrayal, under this suspicion that as the Muslim community was building networks in the 90s and becoming better organized, that somehow that very fact posed the threat that required the surveillance of the Muslim community. Wow.
0: Yeah, so this is what I wanted to ask, actually. You know, as an attorney, um, in my opinion, there's no greater duty than fighting the government. And the reason I say that is, and I tell a lot of, you know, my clients and, and other friends... You know, when I was doing criminal defense and they say, well, you know, how do you defend these people? And I always tell them I'm defending the system, right? We are your last defense from government intrusion. So that's why I was very proud to see that you run the case because, you know, it's not light work to go against the FBI. OK, and it's not something majority of attorneys would even want to do. Right. I mean, there's, there's there's a lot that comes with this. So what's it like to fight the feds?
1: Uh, it's. It's something. Uh, it's It was surprising for me to come up against, to be suing the government and to see that a government agency, because when we think of the government, we think this is the institution that represents the public, that is founded and funded by the public, and so it's supposed to serve the public, right? And so if you, everybody thinks like, okay, well, if it's if you're an FBI agent, then you're you're protecting the public and you're enforcing law, but that's not where it always stops necessarily. And we know that. And so one of the surprising things that I saw, uh, and this case wasn't my first exposure to it, but it was, I definitely saw a lot of it and I've seen a lot since in other cases too. Um, The government can be corrupt, can be not transparent. They can lie to you. uh, They can withhold documents and and the onus is on you to find out as the citizen what's being hidden from you. And corruption uh, and exploitation and abuse, they hide in the, in the shadows. So the only way to fix them as citizens is to shine a bright light on them wherever you see the, those shadows, shine a bright light on them and clean it up, you know? And so that's all we were trying to do when we, uh, when we, when ASIA requested this FOIA and when we pursued those documents was let's let's combat surveillance with transparency. So
0: is it fair to say this is a bigger battle for you than just this one issue on Bridgeview? It's, it's more of a, hey, this is going on way more often than people might think, let's expose these dark shadows. Do you have more of a holistic view on it by fighting this case, that by fighting this case, it inherently brings up other issues That we have with the federal government or the fbi or you know different agencies because i'm sure other agencies do the same thing the fbi is doing right yeah for sure you know homeland security you know ice whatever you want to talk about we won't even go to those guys i'm sure they're probably even worse but do you see this as more of a broad fight or is your focus strictly on this or can you do both basically by fighting this fight kind of have a more holistic approach to telling the government yo you're going too far
1: um, I do see it as a h- part of a holistic approach. I think of in all of those agencies that you've mentioned, I've encountered and have f- seen the very same things, the same kind of behavior. And what it comes from is this idea that by... It's kind of a perverse notion, in my opinion, because what I said in the beginning about these agencies—they're paid by us, the public, the citizens—and they serve us, the public, the citizens—but they don't always act that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that that they don't always act that way. There is a culture in uh, very often in uh, government agencies where, you know, people have power by virtue of that position and. Sometimes when you don't have when you have an environment that encourages abuses of power, you're going to see a lot of abuses of power, whether it be in the FBI or elsewhere. And so, yeah, I think it's an obligation for everybody to face that and to, to hold the government's feet to the fire whenever they see that, because if they don't, it's just going to keep going and it's going to grow bigger and, and stronger and it's going to be harder to take down later on that's, I think, a lot of what we're seeing right now is corruption that's been allowed, corruption and abuse that's been allowed to fester for so long because as citizens, we want to give the benefit of the doubt to these agencies. What we're not realizing is that they need a lot of oversight right now. Uh, there needs to be a lot more transparency and accountability right now, more than ever. Um,
0: yeah, and my issue is I feel they throw the threat to national security so loosely to block things. And not just with this case. I mean, we see it all the time. Everything is a freaking national security concern now. And I I feel like the law gives them that big umbrella to throw everything under the the guise of national security. And, you know, I get it. There are national security threats and there's, you know, classified things that they might not be able to release. But it's kind of bullshit. Not everything is, is a threat to national security. Do you think they use that very loosely and to their advantage?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. And, and it's also, if you look at historically, whether that their strategies have actually led to more efficient national security policies, the answer would be no. I mean, Operation Vulgar Betrayal was a massive surveillance investigation that went on through the 90s, was shut down in 2000, didn't lead to a single arrest, didn't, didn't lead to um, a single conviction, um, wow! Yeah, nothing. No, I mean, I, th- I think back. Uh, well, I mean. Arguably, you could say that Mohammed Salah was indicted. That was an Israeli,
0: right? Exactly. You
1: know, so, like, if you go back into his story, he was actually imprisoned by the Israelis and tortured into a confession. Right. The State Department at the time too was uh, ha- had a lot of concerns about his treatment and his coerced confession. Mm-hmm. Um, but the State Department is a different agency than the FBI, and somebody at the FBI got wind of that case of him. His uh, being held in Israel, and then opened up an investigation, and we know that that that's at least part of the reason why OVB Operation Vul- Vulgar Betrayal, this huge investigation, surveillance investigation, was started, was because of that. Uh, partly because of the Muhammad's Muhammad Salah's, uh,
0: which is a ho- that could be its own podcast. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, what they did grew up that around was horrible. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
0: you know, we grew up around them, and we you know we saw him, and I you know I was a little younger, so I didn't grasp the full you know extent of. What was going on but um you know the whole community felt that muhammad salah was kind of the i want to say the figure but he was kind of the symbol of all the bullshit that we were going through um and i think he was kind of the i hate to use the word poster boy but unfortunately he was the guy that we all seen as the one person that's a prime example of what our community is going to uh be going through now as you stated this is not the first time you fought the feds or, or the government or anything like that you know a lot of lawyers would be too scared to do that, and let's be honest here. Um, some would be worried about their career. Would my clients be, you know, like it? Hey, would they think I'm unpatriotic? Yeah, I mean, I can c- come up with a million reasons why. I don't want to ask you why you do it because I think it's been very clear. But what do you say to those attorneys, mainly, you know, some younger ones who say, "Man, I really would love to do that, but I'm scared." How do you? How would you talk them into saying, "No, go for it."
1: Uh, I would say I totally get it. <laughs> I know because um, you know these things are real and they do have a lot of power. And it, you know, it is not something that it's not a, a fight you should take up without understanding what the possible consequences of it are. Um, but having said that. As, as lawyers, who else is going to do it besides us? Mom? Exactly. You know? I agree. Uh, that, that is our duty. That's why we took an oath. That's why we, we assumed this profession as part of the duty, I mean, you could be a contracts lawyer, but I believe it's still part of the duty of every attorney who took the time to understand the law, to get licensed and to to create and build a career and profit off of that, Mm -hmm. to also where they see threats to justice and to our system of justice to actually take action. And I think it's our obligation. I also think that things can only get worse the more people step back and let these things happen. They can only, justice isn't a thing that exists on its own. It can only be asserted. It can only be uh, given to you when you demand it, not when it's just handed to you. You don't ask for it, you take it. Correct. Um, And so if we're not the ones taking it, then nobody's going to give it to you for free.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, know, we know the law, we know rules of evidence. I mean, you know, when you go into court, you know, there, there's people out there that might be smart enough to, to do it, but it's very rare. So the, the attorneys need to be the gatekeepers because we know the rules to the game essentially, right? We know how to file in court. We know how to file these lawsuits and and do all of that. So I agree with you. It's our duty because this is our area um, of expertise. And and I agree with your point that we need to kind of keep having these checks on them because if we look at today with all the brutality, police brutality issues that are coming out and now – the help of video you know some of these these things are are, are slowly coming out <clears throat> and now you you see that there's going to be legislation there's going to be lawsuits 1983 claims um I, I spoke to a lawyer recently who does 1983 claims and basically he's saying dealing with the cities and towns now it's totally shifted right and now because a lot of pressure from attorneys and from these videos uh, they're trying to implement more training and all of that. So, so I do want to kind of shift to that conversation because you have a very, very interesting background about that in Bahrain, correct? Yeah. Um, give us very briefly kind of what you did in Bahrain. Um, and we, I really want to get into that because I think it does relate to a lot of things that are going on right now. So let's talk about Bahrain. What did you do there?
1: So I was the chief of staff uh, for the Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry. It was uh, a human rights investigation that was launched uh, after in uh, the spring of 2011, Bahrain took to the streets demanding reforms. Uh, one of the reforms were elections for a new prime minister. The prime minister had been there for decades. He was, I think, the brother of the king. And, you know, was it fixed a fixed election? Of, it was an election, quote-unquote. Yeah, quote elections quote, 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 yeah. 99% They just victory. wanted some reforms, political reforms, mm-hmm. that would mean a more representative democracy. That was what initially drove them out into the streets. Uh, there were a lot of... Things that happened after that. Things, uh, for example, we had, you know, allegations of excessive force by police. Police dispersing the demonstrations um, uh, just because they wanted to quell the political dissonance, not because the protesters were themselves posing any threat to the public. Uh, there were also, you know. We see this happening, by the way, now, like where you had pro-government uh, armed, uh, armed or unarmed demonstrators that cause that would instigate uh, confrontations with the you know the pro-democracy. Let's call them demonstrators. Um, and so our investigation took us into took us into Bahrain. I, I was able to see what the law enforcement tactics were. Um, we saw the prison conditions. We saw uh, we saw kids who lost their eyes, for example, to rubber bullets just because they were demonstrating in the streets. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of stories that we compiled from what happened there. And the one thing that I will say that I learned from that experience, and by the way, I saw it replicated again in Egypt um, and through through my work with um, in Italy with the yeah. Institute um you know, we we saw what happened, what was happening in Egypt, also in Libya, also in Syria. I've I've done some work there. Wow. Um, and
0: Pol- after the war,
1: during the civil war, the civil war, yeah. correct? Okay. Yeah. Um. I don't like calling it a civil war, but you—that's yeah. the reference. But, um. Yeah. It, we saw a lot, and one one of the things that we should keep in mind is those law enforcement officers in the Gulf—they were—they're—they're they're trained by. U.S. law enforcement officers really? and uh, European law enforcement officers, and the strategy that they have when they want to break up demonstrations, first, it's not for public safety because often, most often, you see these demonstrations when they start, they're they're peaceful demonstrations. Um, things don't get violent or or. I don't, not even necessarily violent, but maybe destructive. Things don't get destructive until people get provoked either by law enforcement or by pro-government, you know, on our, like, not not non-law enforcement, but people who are there representing the government. And so um, one of the things that we saw is that these techniques are replicated all over the world. You try to disperse the protests so that you don't want them all in the same place um, and then you, you can try to um, instigate them reacting violently by, you know, starting, trying to start something. And then once you do that, when you have a crowd of 10,000 people, all you need is just a tiny little spark to ignite a lot of chaos. Um, even though everybody started that movement thinking we're just going to march any little thing can set that off and send people into chaos, and then once that happens, they use that chaos as the excuse to justify excessive uh, police tactics. so uh, one story that that stands out in my mind in Bahrain was that we um, we got we got up we got word that there was a demonstration happening in a neighborhood, so we went we went down to it and we saw that there was a standoff. there were a bunch of police cars, and then uh, about maybe. 50 feet away were a bunch of demonstrators and they had their hands up and they had signs up and they were saying, Salmia, Salmia, like we're, we're, we're being peaceful, we're being peaceful. And so we turned to the like we, we go and we talk to them, and they had told us that the police were getting ready to attack them, that they had already started with rubber bullets and, and uh, tear gas. But they hadn't the police were restraining themselves in front of us because they knew that we were there for this investigation. Um, And then uh, we, the police were telling us, everything's fine, everything's fine. We leave, the chief investigator after about five minutes in the car goes to the driver, you know what, go back. So he turns around, comes back to, and we get there just in time to see. The The demonstrators and the police officers are still far apart from one another. The demonstrators do nothing, their hands are still in the air and they're just chanting. And then we see the police descend upon them like uh, like like they were attacking them. Um, tear gas, rubber bullets. We stop, the, we get out of the car, we come in, and the police immediately retreated. Wow. Um, that happened twice, by the way. We pretended to leave again, and they did it again. So let me ask okay. you this.
0: How do you get in there, right? Was Bahrain open? Were they by force? How do you guys get into a country that doesn't want you there. Uh, you know how, how do you guys do that, practically speaking? How do you get boots on the ground? And are you safe there? Because if I was in your position, I'm like, I'm going against the government. I'm in their country. Am I going to make it out alive?
1: Well, in this particular instance, the government uh, mandated the investigation. So they they approved it. The reason for that was because the UN stepped in and said, if you guys don't commission your own investigation and it's independent, uh-huh. we're sending uh, uh-huh. our own Commission gotcha. of an inquiry. And so they didn't want that interference. They then instead created their own commission. Um, I, it was an independent commission. We conducted an investigation. We find that found and reported that there were a lot of abuses that were being done to people who were really just trying to exercise some uh, their, basic their, their basic rights for reform. They just wanted a representative government.
0: But, you know, here's, I guess, where I'm confused or... You're doing an investigation. Who are you reporting back to? The Bahraini government. So you're reporting to those that you're investigating. Yeah. That seems very counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. Well, they're the only people with the actual power to do anything about it. So the idea was, if you if you conduct an investigation, you say, here, this is what we found, and these are our recommendations for how to get better. Then who can blame you if you don't take them? But yourself. Like, who do you blame? For not taking them, if if uh, things continue to degenerate,
0: I see. So, do you think they took your consideration, or they said, "Okay, thank you, Habib. Do you have uh, a good exa- day." Exactly. That
1: was it's the <laughs> latter. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, after our investigation rounded up and we were done, there was a movement to denaturalize, d- to to deprive, strip of citizenship, uh, a number of Bahraini political activists who were Bahraini, who who, were, who are Bahraini. I mean, can you imagine somebody? Do, like, so th- a lot of that still occurred after we left. And it was something that me and my colleagues from that time uh, talk about a lot is, was it worth it for us? What, what did we do all this for if nothing was going to happen? And my own, my takeaway has always been, look, we don't have the power to do everything, to make everything right. But we went in there, we did our investigation, we bore witness to what was happening and we made recommendations and they're there for history right and so if the government does or does not heed our advice then that's for that's on them but at least now whereas never it would not have been before there is documentation of all of these things that happened to these people who were really just out there trying to get some basic reforms and it reminds me of what i'm seeing today with the black lives matter movement
0: yeah that was my next question so you know, with all your experience, and Bahrain's not the only one you did it with, but from all your previous experience and with what's going on now, how would you, or what would you say to the U.S. government and the protesters off your experience? Um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is from what you've learned, how can we incorporate that to what's going on with the Black Lives Movement and everything going on right now? What would you be, I guess, your your, your point of emphasis for both sides in this
1: one? Well, I'll, I'll, I want to address the activists. Um, I think the government knows what it needs to do. I don't think there's anything I could say. But as far as the activists are concerned, what I would say to them is you are engaging uh, in a, in a essentially a fight against an entity, against uh, government agencies that have seen this time and time again from different people marching for different reasons, and so they're ready for you. And you have to be ready for that. And so my advice to them would be to um, really be smart and strategic about uh, not just getting your ex- expressing yourselves, but also about dem- certain demands for change. So um, I, I personally like the discussions about defunding the police. Uh, and I know that <laughs> I, I, I know this is a touchy subject for people, but when you think about how Police departments, in major cities at least, get over half of a city's budget. You know, 54% of Chicago and L.A. and New York's budgets go to their police department. Um, And 54% also of our federal budget goes to military spending. So what I want to ask people out there is, does it seem right to you that a police agency whose functions are to serve and protect the public and to maintain peace in, in a neighborhood, in these communities, should get the same kind of uh, training and equipment and fund, funding, treatment, essentially, an outlook that the military gets when the military's function is not to maintain this, the, the peace of our streets internally, but to defend and protect, supposedly, us from outside foreign invaders. I mean, we're, see, we're what I'm, what I'm trying to say is we treat the police like their military, and we have to start asking the question of why do we think we need military to protect us from ourselves, from the citizens? Why is that the approach we're taking? We have examples, models of places all over the world that have done it better, um, who have brought their their crime rates down with completely different uh, funding, attention to funding elsewhere. And why aren't we looking at that? We should be, we should, I want to, I want people to be started to start looking at police funding in a more practical way. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I, you know, this may sound really dumb. I think one of the issues selling that, I think they phrased it wrong. When you say defund the police, a lot of people say, what do you mean? Don't give the police any money. Right. I, I really think just that term itself, um, I'm not a fan of it. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people in law enforcement, I just think that term itself defunding, but I, I I think a lot of us don't really know the extent of the budgeting, right? I mean, I didn't know it was fifty-four percent. Yeah, I mean it's that's high. a very high. Can number. you imagine
1: what we can if you put that money into schools and uh, after-school programs and other kinds of community service organizations? At least some of it. You know, in other towns, I noticed, I started looking into budgeting, um, in other parts of the world, what they'll do is they'll give half of the city budget to something called public services, of which a police are, are a part of, but not all of. So the, the fire department, the police department, um, and other kinds of like social services that have to, you know, have to have boots on the ground type, uh, you know, have to have people go into situations. Those, the, that money is shared. Um, and and so they're able to actually do more with the money because you can allocate money for programs that the police can't address. They they can't address everything. You can't send a police officer in to sometimes to handle every kind of dispute. It's it's like uh, it's like we say here here here's all this money here you guys figure it out and. I just don't think it's efficient. I think but, we need to relook at that. And I think people saying defund the police, I don't know. I'm not a marketing strategist. <laughs> but that's what they're saying. They're saying we need to take a fresh look. They're not saying we shouldn't have any kind of funding towards protecting the community from, mm-hmm. law, from uh, cr- crime. Um, they're just saying we just need to reapproach the way we spend our money and let's do that.
0: I just think we live in a soundbite era and people don't critically think, so they hear defund. They're gonna say, what do you mean don't give the police any money? You know, do you guys want anarchy? And it's like, okay, it's not that much. But just to play devil's advocate, is it really a money issue though? And the reason I ask you this is, correct me if I'm wrong, Bahrain's a pretty wealthy country, correct? Money's not an issue for them, meaning they could fund their police and fund their other issues. I think it's more inherent issues than just funding. It's not just the money part because, again, Bahrain has is, is, is got tons of money, so I don't care what they budget for police. It doesn't matter. Their police are going to be brutal regardless whether they get funded or they don't. So I guess my point is whether they get X amount of dollars or they don't, I feel it's a more inherent issue in the police and the relationship with the community than it is a money issue. Uh, do you see it differently? Or do you well, think the money allows them to be the way they are? I
1: think especially I, I don't I wasn't in Bahrain long enough to be able to say this is true for Bahrain or not, but in America money talks. Okay. In America the way that you teach somebody that what they did was wrong and that they need to change their ways is is to hurt them financially. More often than not, that's the lesson, that's the the only message that will get across sometimes. Um and so, so yeah, I think that we we these this conversation does have to go hand in hand with funding. I definitely think there has to be a, a completely new way that police officers engage their job and are trained, and that that itself is going to take money. Correct. Um, and I don't want to say that uh, you know you don't have some good officers who are well intentioned and who who took up the job. Because they were well intentioned, they wanted to make their communities a better place. But what I can say this, and I have no doubts about this, is that the police environments do not support that kind of uh, that kind of initiative. They don't allow that kind of intention to thrive, because you know we know stories where police officers have tried to speak out against what they saw. Other officers doing that felt wrong, they themselves may have been themselves discriminated against. And there is a culture of uh, repressing any kind of uh, critique or criticism of policing at all. And that, that's definitely something that it, nothing's going to change so long as that's the environment internally. And that is the environment. We have internal affairs departments. The Chicago police has one. Yeah. Every every major city has one. Um, but what do they do? They're just there to buffer and shield the departments from liability. Right. They're not <laughs> there to hold people accountable. And so, yeah, Every I think things just need to be... Um, looked at from with fresh eyes, like things. sometimes they're more
0: worried about us suing them than they are fixing. The exactly.
1: Problem. And sometimes the machine just, you can't, you can't turn a car into a, a train without some major, major changes. changes yeah. you know? So,
0: and I think a big part of that is, um, I hate to say it, you know, our leadership in charge right now. Right. And that's why I kind of want to transition into something that happened recently, uh with the daca uh decision now i know one of your main practice areas is immigration correct um and i know you got a lot of stuff on your website abrahamlaw.co um so you can get any information on that. but i do want to talk about daca and trump made a really funny tweet uh, i think he said i think the supreme court does not like me <laughs>
1: Oh, he made a that tweet was very scary because what he what he was essentially saying is that he wants to uh, change the composition of the Supreme Court. So he gets decisions that he doesn't like, and he wants to just completely, um, you know. I took it as, hey, Kevin,
0: I'll, I put you there, bro. You know, I put you in that position, and this is what you do to me. Like, I took it as a little petulant child who went to their mommy and said, "Mommy, you said if I clean my room, I can go outside." And then the mommy didn't let him go outside. And I, I think that was a message to his appointees.
1: Well, Kavanaugh voted uh, for him. so Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. he voted in line with the, the person that... So who was the
0: swing vote on that? Because Justice it is, Roberts. It was Roberts. Yeah. Okay. And so, I, I know a lot of lawyers don't. I, I'm kind of a fan of Roberts at times. Uh, I know you probably disagree. Um, Roberts does... is kind of a swing vote sometimes, depending on the issue. Um, but... Let's start from the beginning. What is DACA? Can you dumb it down for us? Like, yeah. you know, what is DACA really?
1: So DACA it stands for Deferred Action uh, for Childhood Arrivals, and what it is is a program that was started by the Obama administration. It was a political compromise because Congress for some reason can't pass real comprehensive immigration reform. There's too much of a stalemate. And so what he his administration tried to do was create a protection the executive branch, the president, he's the enforcer. He's the executive law enforcer, mm-hmm. right? Correct. And so he gets to decide, he or she, <laughs> they, <laughs> get to decide how laws get enforced and what the priorities are. So the president has always been able to enjoy uh, the ability to be able to say, okay, we're going to prioritize these people as opposed to, or th- these types of crimes as opposed to those types of crimes, et cetera. So one of the things that the Obama administration did was it cr- created this program, deferred action. Deferred action meaning we're not going to deport you, mm-hmm. okay, for childhood arrivals. So people who came here as children didn't have control, didn't have any say in that decision. Who came here and are undocumented, um, they they can apply for this, and not and if they qualify for this program, they can get work authorization, they, so they can work lawfully. Um, They can get social security numbers and they can be protected from getting deported. Um, There is no pathway to citizenship with the DACA that was put in place by the Obama administration. Okay. So this does not, all it does is say that the government won't deport you. It doesn't say that you're going to get a green card or citizenship someday or anything like that.
0: Do you stay in limbo the entire time? You're in limbo.
1: But, and, and the thing with DACA was the, the, all of these people were undocumented. The government doesn't know who is undocumented. Mm. They can guess, but they're not, you know. So they, had to, in order to enroll in this program, they had to come forward and i and basically uh, identify themselves. Identify themselves in order to get this Which benefit. And and as scary as it was, you had so many people take up that opportunity because they wanted the opportunity to work and and go to school without fear, um, and so they took it. And the danger has always been, and this was known all the whole time, that because it's a presidential order, it can get, you know, it can end, it can change. This is not something that's written into the laws, and so it's not a protection that's safe, right? right? So when the uh, Trump, when Trump took office, he one of his campaign promises was to end DACA, and that's what he set out to do, um, and. When they ended DACA, all they said, all they seemed to say in their explanation was um, DACA was illegal. And on that basis, they ended ended it. And so the Supreme Court's decision, uh, their recent ruling on DACA, said basically that the reason that was given by the Department of Homeland Security was quote-unquote arbitrary and capricious. In other words, there wasn't a real reason given. They just, you can't just say it's illegal and then not explain yourself, especially when you have all of these people um, who have relied on this program and in reliance on this program came forward, and what are the impact, what is the impact on them? You guys didn't even address this stuff at all. The, the agency did not address it at all. And so the Supreme Court said, uh, no, we're not going to let you end it because your reasons for it I aren't see. clear. So that more of a procedural ground. It's a procedural ground, exactly. So what it does is it gives the administration another chance mm. to go back and provide justifications and then restart this entire uh, debate and, and in the meantime, DACA recipients, they're, they are still in a limbo. I mean, they're, they're, they're a little bit safer now than they were, you know, while this this issue was still up in the air. But they're not that much better off. And, you know,
0: uh, before we get to Trump, I do want to get to Obama. And this was one of my biggest critiques of Obama. Um, this was a watered-down, cheap version of what's supposed to be the DREAM Act, Correct. And my issue with Obama is he kind of punted on the DREAM Act. I really feel he punted on it. And the reason I feel he punted on it, he was trying to push, you know, the healthcare thing. And I just don't think he had enough political capital. And he decided to use his political capital on other issues. And as a lot of other things Obama did, he punted on this. And he left everyone to fend for themselves. And I remember speaking to an, a higher, uh, when I was in D.C., I spoke to a, a higher up in the Obama administration and he, they gave me, you know, and I brought this up and I said, well, you know, Senator Durbin from Illinois is the one I put in the DREAM Act and, you know, we're from Illinois. So I kind of framed it in that sense that a constituent question. And I told him that. I said, your boy punted. And do you guys have any intention of bringing it up? And I got a total bullshit, you know, boilerplate. Oh, we're going to consider it, yada, yada, yada. But he clearly punted on it. Yes, Trump is bad. But why doesn't Obama get any flag for punting on the DREAM Act, which would have gave these people the security that they needed? Do you feel Obama gets a pass on that?
1: I don't. I mean, not amongst immigration advocates, okay. no. Uh, I think he's... he's the Do you president. agree
0: with me first? I mean, uh, what are I your thoughts on that? I,
1: I, Yeah, I think he punted on a lot, um, including immigration reform. I don't want to say that... I don't want to be unfair to Obama. I think every president, and, and this is something that you can see if you start tracking uh, and looking into immigration legislation and reform over the, since maybe let's, let's say the 50s and 60s, but arguably since, since the United States <laughs> was formed, um, immigration has always been a highly political issue. The only, every time, well, not every time. Let's say starting in the late 19th century, when immigration legislation started to get enacted, you could see that it was enacted because people were worried about non-whites coming into the country. Right. So immigration legislation has always had this unspoken racist, racial, um, underlying thing underneath it that, n- that nobody addresses. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Arabs fought to be considered white. I mean, there's case law for Middle Eastern folks when they came— I forgot the case. Um, there was an actual case where Arabs fought to be considered white for reasons. Now it's backfiring against us because we want minority funding and so on and so forth. And it's kind of backfired. But to your point, yeah, I mean, this is something that, you know, people have always, race is always included in uh, immigration. And one, one misconception that I do want to bring up, when we speak of DACA, a lot of people, majority of people, in my opinion, feel that it's only towards Mexicans, right? They think it's a Hispanic issue. When in reality, this is not just a Hispanic issue. I mean, I know plenty of Middle Eastern folks who would qualify under DACA, right? Um, either their parents came, overstayed on a visa, they've stayed, and they're there. And I think part of the racism is it gets subliminally packaged as a Mexican issue. And I feel like Trump packages that to his followers that these damn Mexicans are coming to take over with the whole wall situation. I just feel like he's packaging it, right? One, do you agree with that? And two, what do you think of Trump's administration and their handling of this? I mean, do you think he he's purposely whistling Dixie or, you know, what oh, yeah. is his M.O.?
1: Yeah, I think he's appealing to his voter base, okay. I think. And if you look at, kind of going to what I was saying before, if you look at the history of immigration legislation in this country, it's always been highly centered not on efficiency, not on what's fair for families, not on what the country needs economically. It's always based on populist sentiment. So if you have populist sentiment that is anti-immigration, you're going to see anti-immigration presidents and and, uh, legislation. And if you see pro-immigration, I mean, under Ronald Reagan, there was an amnesty program Mm, that was introduced. Uh, but under uh, Bill Clinton, there were immigration reforms that have made it so much harder for people to keep a green card or wow. to get a green card. So it's not a left-right thing. It is not a left-right thing. It is a voter thing. It is a, the immigrants in this country have historically been used as, uh, I would say, their pawns in campaigns. Every four years, they're just the, they're they're talked about like like they have no agency of their own, no interests, yeah. no no roots in the United States and they're used to just kind of like get other people to vote for or against the issue and it's terrible. It's not I mean That's my issue with Obama. It's the biggest it's all of them and that's my point. My point is every single one of them. Okay? This is the this is the problem is that immigration is not seen as something that needs to be system—it's such an important system, by the way. It is one of the second to tax law is the most complicated uh, set of laws we have in this country, and yet for some reason, it is the most highly politicized, uh, biased in execution and even in construction. The is that' why shit doesn't biased. get done. Oh yeah, yeah, all the time.
0: That's why it doesn't get done. It doesn't get. We done. have one of the worst immigration systems.
1: Horrible! Ever. It's horrible. I mean, we keep kids in cages. It's. We have families that have been in detention, and this is before Trump as well. By the way, mm-hmm. okay. He he took the bad stuff and he made it worse. Okay, okay? Well, but the it. bad stuff wasn't created by him; it preceded him, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that every citizen should start to look at and needs to take up uh, with their government
0: you know, a lot of people don't know this. I actually studied immigration law in law school. My my externship in DC was for immigration. I was going to be an immigration attorney. I thought I loved it. I got into real practice and I absolutely hated it. And what I hated about it was it was too discretionary. Yeah. You might qualify for this. Well, maybe we'll give you this. I don't know. We'll let you know about this, but here's a two year continuance day and come back and we'll see how it goes. And I'm not, I, I hate to, the discretion of it. I wanted, you know, X, Y, Z, one plus one equals two.
1: Yeah, it pretends to be straightforward. It's There's not nothing straightforward about all. it. It's the most twisted system. And and the problem is that it deters people from seeking lawful immigration benefits too. Oh. That could, and this is something I think that is a strategy of the Trump administration itself. They want to break, they're not trying to fix the machine. They're trying to break the machine, okay? Mm. And the, the purpose of it is to halt immigration altogether. Um, and what they've done is they've created such, they've done such a great job of that, by the way, that USCIS can no longer fund itself. USCIS was, used to be able to fund itself through the application fees wow, that immigrants really? and their family members were paying into the system so that they could get these benefits lawfully. Wow. And what's happened because they've made it so discouraging to apply for anything anymore that people aren't applying anymore. They don't trust the system and now they can't pay themselves. Wow. So the, the, the machine is breaking.
0: Wow. That's interesting. And I
1: think that was a concerted effort. I mean, we talked about me suing the federal government. I have one case that started just before Trump took office, and it's still going on in federal court. I've had to change the defendants, because you know when you sue the government, you have to name the secretary. You don't just say, I'm suing the Department of Homeland Security. You say, I'm suing... Chad Wolf or Kristen Nielsen. I've had to change the defendant on that case five <laughs> times in the last four years, Mo. Wow. I'm not joking. So you have to amend the Five times in the last four years. Do you years. have to file no, a new I complaint stopped. or just- No, 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 I stopped. I let the government explain that to the judge. Like, oh, uh, it's not, no longer Ms. Nielsen <laughs> that's the defendant. It's Now it's uh, Chad Wolf. And then it was- uh, um, Ken Cuccinelli or something. I'm probably missing somebody yeah. in between. It's a revolving door. Ken, Cuc- Do you know USCIS doesn't have a director right now? Really? Kenneth Cuccinelli was his the acting director. But when the acting DHS secretary, the last one, Chad Wolf, went out, Ken Cuccinelli was appointed as the acting director of DHS. So now he's the acting director of DHS. And the position of the head of USCIS is completely Vacan-
0: vacant. Nobody wants it?
1: Uh, he's like he's doing both jobs. I guess nobody <laughs> wants. Nobody cares anymore. It's wow. uh, I don't think I think the Trump administration's objective is not to have this system run. It's to stop it because by stopping it, you have less approvals uh, uh, for benefits. You have less people coming in. Um, so, all of that means that when you are cam- on the campaign trail, you can report to your voter base that less people are getting green cards and citizenship, ah. less people are coming into the country. Wow. And so, you, you know, that's it's one way of taking care of that problem, I guess, wow. but it's not, it's not going to.
0: So, it's straight politics. It's
1: not going well. Yeah, no. Not in politics. terms of, not if you're looking at efficiency and not if you're looking at actual, um, like, a, a, a rule of law.
0: interesting um yeah i mean deck i mean it it was a small victory i'm with you i'm still pessimistic um you know with the way the supremes are kind of shaped right now you know god knows how it's gonna go and let's hope rbg survives this and uh you know we don't have to replace her but you know if we have to replace another supreme with trump in office we're fucked do you agree oh yeah for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. we're already kind of screwed right now. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but if 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 we lose one more, um, and then I say we, but uh, that's really kind of worrisome. But speaking of RBG, uh, which is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, we call her RBG. I want to kind of shift into women in law. Uh, it's a topic of mine that I really enjoy talking about. Um, it kind of pisses people off, which I like. Because I always say that, in my opinion, women are the future of law. I really do believe that. And the reason I I believe that is just from my experiences dealing with women attorneys. I find them to be very hardworking. um, They're very rational. They're very passionate. And I feel that, and I hope this doesn't come off wrong, I feel women attorneys are always having to prove themselves. One, do you agree with that? And two you know just speaking with you and if people would just look up your your background you're clearly a great attorney you have massive experience um and i'm sure you still get certain crap that i probably wouldn't get as a male attorney so one do you agree with that and two what are some of your experiences as a woman in law
1: uh yeah i do agree with that it is hard sometimes because there are first impressions that people will have of you the moment you walk into a room that You have to, if you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, you have to, everything that you do is to try to um, change that perception. Um, And so I'm very aware of the fact that when, very oftentimes when I'm talking to, when I'm engaging, let's say with opposing counsel on a case or when I'm in court, for example, um, I know that when they first look at me, unless they've Googled me and seen my CV or something, they're probably not going to think very right. much of me and I've got wow. to prove myself wow. to them. Um, so it's, yeah, it it is something that I think probably most women attorneys deal with and I would say for sure, you know, women of color um, because so, like there's so much behind it too. I mean, growing, it's just like from the moment where we're brought up, um, we're almost brought up to second guess ourselves and to 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 feel like we have to constantly be proving ourselves. Um,
0: Maybe because you do. I mean, you know, I had to say like, not that you do. The way the society is, even me as a male, as a minority male, I I felt some of the same thing when I was doing criminal defense. You know, I would go to courts and, you know, the old white guys look at me like, oh, "What are you doing here, dude? Like, why are you on this side with us?" So. I mean, I've heard ridiculous story from women attorneys. I, I, I've i seen once a judge tell her, a, a woman attorney, the paralegals are not allowed to step to the bench, um, that help is not supposed to step up to the bench. Um, just so many of those stories, and, and kind of what I mean is that you guys kind of have to, is I feel you guys are held to a different standard. Uh, do you think you guys are held to a different standard than male attorney? For sure.
1: I mean, but a lot of that has to do with the same kind of things that women deal with every day. So, for example, if you're, uh, you know, if you're aggressive, and I can be aggressive mm. sometimes. Well, I, you I've fight got, the FBI. I I've got, got, a, I've got a little, you know, and I can have a temper sometimes, just <laughs> like anybody. But if you do that, you're, you know, you're like irrational, or mm. or, the b um, word. or the b word, yeah, like she, you, yeah, exactly. Mm. Whereas if I were a man, I would just be an alpha. Yeah, you know. And uh, that that I made a decision not to let that affect mm-hmm. my life. I've had actually had very long conversations with a lot of women who have gone through the same thing, who feel the same thing. Like uh, this feeling like the world expects us to be smiley and yeah. bright. <laughs> and even when you walk into a courtroom and you deliver your argument, I'm just going to, you know, like they don't expect you to be aggressive. They want even you to be Mary that Poppins. Ha- yeah, they want me to be Mary Poppins practicing yeah. law as opposed to, you know, somebody who's more fiery than that i guess right. i don't know um
0: you guys internalize it and use it as motivation do you brush it off how do you deal with it i mean what would you tell depends
1: we- on the situation okay. um it depends on the situation i i think there are lessons that can be learned um from the way all of us act, and being a woman is no different we all i think we we all walk through life with people telling us how to act and how not to act and it doesn't you know, you, Mo, you've experienced that too, but just in different ways, right? Um, and so as a woman attorney, I feel like, yeah, a lot of times I'll walk in and it seems like I have to be a little bit more articulate or uh, have to be on my toes, be ready for anything, because if, if I'm not prepared, then it's going to be seen um, kind of as a, a as a message or is it as an implication to my entire gender and and class of person, you know. Do you feel that um, way when
0: with just opposing counsel, or do you see that with judges as well? Do you have that feeling?
1: It depends on the judge, uh, but yeah, I have had some judges make me feel that way. Really? Yeah, for wow. sure. I've walked up to I've walked up to the bench, and for example, it's me and some old, you know, three old white attor- male attorneys. Okay. And then I'll say something, and then the judge looks at them and be like, Can you, you know, uh, <laughs> tell me what, tell, give me, you give me the, you know, bottom awesome. line here, and I'll just oh, go wow. with what you say the man, the rational, wow. love-a-headed man, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I've had to wow. deal with that. Um, yeah, I've I, I had, to, but also the, the, that I'm a person of color feeds into that too. So I've had people look at me with shock and awe because I can form an articulate, intelligent sentence <laughs> and I've read case law. You know, like, yeah. oh, really? You, you
0: which is uh, basic hmm, functions of an attorney. She's,
1: <laughs> she knows how to use big words. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that happens. It happens, and it surprises me. And in, in the beginning, I would be like, oh, you know. But now I kind of laugh it off, and I'm just, I'm just gonna be me.
0: <laughs> you know, and again, the reason I I root for women in law is because I had some of those experiences, and I know what it's like. I mean, when I was doing criminal defense. I was mistaken for the defendant multiple times, okay? In a suit and tie, keep in mind. I wasn't in plain clothes. So I guess maybe because I feel some of it that I root for women in law because it's just kind of like...
1: I think it's a shaved head, Mo. I think shaved heads make you look like a criminal.
0: Bald is the new thing, as they say. Uh, But yeah, you know, I I think there's going to be... So my biggest issue with the legal world is it's so old school. It does not like change. It likes to stick to what it is. And I think with more minority attorneys, more women attorneys, I think the old guard is looking at it like, okay, we're kind of, our power's slipping a little bit. Let's kind of get it back to where it was. So I feel women are in the forefront of telling the legal world, fuck you, we're here and we're going to do well and we're going to be better than you. So I'm a firm believer of play the ru- play their game with their rules, just do it better than them. And I think that's what women are doing. That's why I'm really excited to see women like you who are taking these cases that i'll say publicly that a lot of men would be too scared to take so i love seeing the women in law just really kind of do their thing um but i do want to end on this so before we go just give people kind of an idea i know you're executive producer of that give us an idea of kind of what you're doing and what your focus is and basically how people can find you and how you can help them out
1: um, so i have my my practice that's mainly what i'm doing right now is working on the cases that i have i deal with uh, civil rights employment law and immigration law those are the three main areas i practice in um, if anybody wants to reach me they can find me on my website abrahamlaw.co or call my office um, the numbers on the website
0: awesome christina thank you so much i was really happy to have you on i doubt this will be the only time we have you on i know you're busy but i'll definitely try to Squeeze you to come back one more time. You gave us a lot of really great stuff. So I really thank you for coming. Well, on thanks today. so much
1: for having awesome. me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Now it's time for my minute with Mo. And this one is just kind of off topic, but it was uh, based off something that happened to me recently. Um, I was at the office and I had some random lawyer call my office and he had a situation with some uh, city issues. Uh, he does not handle city issues. He only handles uh, real estate and I gave him a call back, and you know, one thing I was taken back was how surprised he was that I how quick I called him back. And basically, we had a long, you know, good conversation, and I gave him a lot of free advice on basically how to help his client. And he was very appreciative. And my point of saying this story is, this applies to lawyers, but it could be applied to everybody else. It's okay to help your colleagues out. You know, there, there's enough business out there for everyone. And I, I've been shut out by other lawyers lawyers that I've helped myself, and when I'd go for help and they wouldn't do it. But there's plenty of lawyers that have helped me along the way. I remember when I first started, um, there's a, an attorney out there, very well established. Um, he didn't need anything from me, um, but he used to reach out to me. And if I had any issues, if I needed a case that I, I was working on and I needed a case to use, I could pick up the phone and call him and he would help me. He would not expect anything in return. and I And I remember how much I appreciated that so my point is to attorneys stop being greedy you know if you can help another attorney out go ahead and help them out um because i promise you it will come back and for example this attorney i guarantee you if he gets any other city cases who do you think is the first attorney is going to call he's going to refer them to me so there is a back-end business side to it but just in general if most attorneys are good it makes our profession look better it allows us to do our jobs much better so to the lawyers out there. And again, this could be for all industries. Stop being greedy, help your colleagues out. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. And if you're scared of competition, then you're the problem, not your competition. So that is our show for today. We thank everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the next in the moment.